This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radioteam at beyondzeroemissions.org. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions community show. Tonight, Viv is reporting to us about Melbourne's 2017 Eco City Summit. Hi, Viv. Tell us what you found out there. Oh, hello, Andy. Yes. How are you going? Well, I'm going well. Um, it's very uh, grim and rainy up here in Sydney, but I'm, I just wanted to um, do the intro for the show because it was so interesting. It's not long ago, and it was a, really a big buzz in Melbourne, this huge summit, a world summit, and we were addressed by Al Gore, who, you know, oh, wow. got a new film out, and he he's a sort of a bit of a star quality person but a lot of people were then saying oh he doesn't go far enough it's just green capitalism and he really didn't represent the tone of the summit which was much humbler I thought because we had many many talks and people from um, much poorer countries than America and Australia and European countries and they're struggling with all different aspects of cities in the face of climate change and some Mm. of them you know, just have terrible population populations living in um, places that are just regularly washed away by hurricanes or tidal waves, and then they're just picking up the pieces years later. You know, they're really struggling, and um, there are all sorts of experts there. And I like the feeling there of helping each other. There was something called the C40 cities, and the uh, leader of that is called man called Kevin Austin. He was from London, and he had pioneered that thing where they stopped most of the cars getting into London City, yeah, yeah. being part of that yeah that policy to get the smog down. And um, but those C40 cities, which includes Melbourne and Sydney, um, those C40 cities around the world are kind of leading the way and sharing their expertise. So. Uh, it was. I, I, I spoke to the people that interested me, so I hope that they also interest the audience. Mm-hmm. But I, the ones tonight I met, the three people, I just thought they were very interesting. One was a t- Dutch man, he's a very tall Dutch man and very enthusiastic, and he was introduced to me that... Um, Professor Kate Orty, she's a great friend of our show. She, she said, oh, you must speak to him. And when I heard he was Dutch, I just jumped at the chance to ask him about how they do the... The dikes there in you know Holland, the you know sea level rise yeah. is, is something they've had on them on their minds for centuries. Yeah. So yeah, yeah and they've right. had historically they've had lots of floods there. And he told me all about that and how it had made in fact the Dutch much more cooperative and democratic because they had had to pull.
pull together to protect themselves against the sea and but meanwhile he's an architect and um a landscape architect i think and he he said oh he told me about several projects and you'll hear about tonight where they have kind of like a, a sand machine the idea is to work with nature than rather than work against nature and this sand machine creates new dunes just with the currents of the ocean just uh, creates mm. these new sand dunes which Amazing. are a sort of buffer for the land. It is amazing and he sent me a link which we'll put on the podcast so for engineers who are listening and you really want to follow up what this is, this technology that in fact could be exported to other countries who are low-lying or you know in danger of being inundated, this looked very modern, very new and so he spoke about that and, and a few other things and then there's a, a woman I met who was a local government uh, director from the Pacific Islands, and she she's based in Suva, but she visits all the other parts of the Pacific, where especially where they've had cyclones and emergencies. Yep. In a session on emergency services, and all the other people there, there were people from all over the world, like some New Zealanders who were talking about earthquake emergencies, and people from here talking about bushfire emergencies, and how you prepare the community when you know these things are going to happen. Mm in the future, how you prepare yourself and how you prepare people and how you hang on to um, kind of the best people in the community to, to take leadership, you hone their, their skills up. And anyway, so she, she gave a talk and I had a chat with her later, which we'll hear her talk about. And it's really, it must be really dreadful because the islands are so far apart, you know, the communication yeah. are really difficult, you know, miles, thousands of miles away from each other and very remote little communities. Um, so that was their main problem with the com communication. But I think they were networking at the conference and lots of people were sharing their knowledge and, and I hope sharing some sort of aid because she also talked about foreign aid could be very unhelpful sometimes. She told me about one place where they, they just, after a disaster some foreign aid group came in with it and just built a clinic right where their main road had been and they didn't yeah, even ask anybody. Of the sheet you <laughs> gave me, amazing. Yeah, sounds yeah. All very interesting as usual. It is. And the last one is David Holmgren and he's a permaculture guru. Everyone, I think, in Melbourne will know about David Holmgren but he, he's very interesting. He's very global in his thinking and he's thinking about how we can, you know, de downsize ourselves, you know, the big, rich cities like Melbourne, you know, yep. we just need to uh, slow down a bit, and uh, he, he talks about that. So yeah, I hope the great. audience and the listeners like it, but um, yeah, I think we'll have time to play all three interviews, so I hope I hope the listeners hang in for the last one is Holmgren, but the first one will be Professor Rob Rockhammer, and then a lady, the lady is called Carabais Paolba. Fantastic. Well, sounds great. Oh, yeah. Hit that on and we'll get underway. Thanks, Viv. Thanks very much, Annie. Thank no you. worries. Bye -bye. I'm at the Eco City World Summit and a, a person from UTS is now going to speak to us. He's basically a landscape architect, but now he's professor of sustainable urban environments. And we wanted to, I want to talk to him about flood control because he's from the Netherlands and I know he's going to know a lot of that even in his bones. Uh, his name is Rob Rohemer, and welcome to the Beyond Zero Mission Show, Rob. Tell us a little bit about Netherlands history, how even back into medieval times you've had to think deeply about 
flooding. That's right, that's right. Um, the Netherlands in the year 1100 was a very swampy area, so people were trying to get out the water out of their backyards, basically. Um, but when you do that, you need to negotiate with your neighbors because you put the, your own water into the next lot of, of land. And that was the reason that people started to um, work together in that period uh, without any democratic uh, systems uh, available. But at that moment, they already started to collaborate on these kind of issues. And around the year 1200, 1230, the first so-called water boards in the Netherlands emerged out of that system of collaboration. And they made appointments around uh, controlling the dikes, who could uh, let their water in which uh, lands. And so to say, this is the was the first democratic system that emerged in the Netherlands. And I always think it's very interesting to look at it because we still have the same type of uh, approaches in our democratic uh, system. At the moment, we've got 12 to 15 uh, parties in our national government, yeah. um, as opposed to the United States and also Australia, uh, who has, have basically uh, one uh, who has the majority, yeah. and there's not a big one, and, uh, and maybe one or two small ones. Well, we're looking now at, with climate change. Often we see maps of cities around the world where the little blue line is ex- is going inland from the where all the cities are, where all the port facilities are, where all the infrastructure is. How is Holland prepared? Because it's always going to be uh, in danger of floods. But what, tell us what the state of the art is in Holland. Yeah, that's quite an interesting question because that has changed over the last 10 years or so. Mm. So from the tw- year 1200 until, let's say, 2000s, we were used to make stronger and bigger dikes and dams to control the water, uh, what what was uh, thrown at us by the sea, basically. There came uh, to that problem another problem, and that is the river discharge. Because we are in a delta, we need to uh, lead the water from Switzerland and Germany and France and Belgium and all the countries that are up in the in the stream. We need to to lead that water to the sea, and as more water needs to be discharged because of heavier rainfall, but also urbanization everywhere, lots of extra amounts of water need to be discharged through that whole system. So we've got the problem from the sea and also a problem from the rivers. And our country, the Netherlands, is exactly in the middle of those two, which then is no longer really controllable um, by making dikes or or bigger dams. And history showed that even if we make more, more dams and more dikes, higher ones, stronger ones, every century there is a big flood happening in the Netherlands. So a lot of fatalities uh, as a result of that. And people now start to think differently around that. People start to think, uh, well, even the strongest die can break through and then we have a big disaster because half of the country is still below sea level. Even if sea level doesn't rise, then half of the country will flood. And that means that people start thinking around building with nature. Uh, solutions. So use the power that nature have has by itself, use that power in the system to create a new and stronger coastal or river defense.
Well, what does that look like? Well, there's one interesting example that um, explains it really well, I think, and that's the so-called scent engine. Um, the scent engine is uh, basically a whole lot of sand that we put in the sea in front of the coast and let the sea, um, the currents and the waves uh, of the sea, let the, uh, the sea transport the sand <laughs> to the coast. Um, and this, that sand will be uh, dropped somewhere, um, not randomly, but creates new and stronger beaches and higher dunes. So new uh, coastal defenses will be built up by nature itself. Instead that we as human in- engineers uh-huh. start to create a whole new system of defenses that eventually will be uh, not so strong as nature can build it. Well, you uh, told me that you're teaching at the um, University of Technology in Sydney and that you're planning something called the Sydney Barrier Reef. And I didn't catch it at first. I thought, you mean the the Great Barrier Reef? You said, no, Sydney Barrier Reef. So tell us about that. Yeah, that's right. That's uh, that's right. Um, This is a recent uh, research that we are doing at UTS. And we came to this uh, concept because the Great Barrier Reef is uh, bleaching. Uh, Every year there is a huge part of, of the Barrier Reef bleaching. And eventually, uh, if, if oceans get warmer and warmer, we'll die, die away. And um, that's what we all want to prevent happening. And I would say uh, the best thing that could happen is that we cool the, can cool down the Pacific in order to recreate, regenerate the Great Barrier Reef. But as it looks now, as the standard, uh, standard of, of science looks now at it, um, it could well happen that within 10 or 20 years, mm. hardly anything has, is left uh, from the Great Barrier Reef. But knowing that ocean temperatures are rising, the same is happening in front of the Sydney coast. So the ideal situation for a reef are moving southward as well. And along with the um, um, perfect conditions for for a barrier reef uh, moving uh, southward, it also increases the, the chance of uh, cyclones and heavy storms in front of the coast. So those two things we thought we could combine and create an artificial reef in the beginning on which a natural reef can grow in later stages and can also protect uh, oh, Sydney from heavier storms and uh, storm surges. So it's a, an artificial reef presumably made of concrete or something on which coral would grow. Yeah, that's right. We don't use concrete uh, in our plants. We th- uh, one of the things we, we thought of is uh, to use oiled oil rigs and old ships to sink them down in front of the coast in specific places. Um, and uh, already tests have proven that coral will actually grow faster than in a natural situation on these type of surfaces. So within 10 or 15 years, we can start to recreate a whole new and very ecological valuable natural reef on this artificial subs- uh, substrates. Oh, I think we have lighthouses at both ends <laughs> <laughs> so the ships don't bump in. But listen, more urgently, countries like Bangladesh, um, we've seen at this conference uh, people from India, Mumbai, cities like that, very big cities, big populations are imminently in threat of, they're already being flooded quite frequently and uh, being really badly ruined. So what what sort of um, innovations are happening there? Are you working, uh, and also are Western countries working hand in hand? Because I'd like to hear a bit more of this uh, transfer of expertise, you know, from places like Holland that have been doing this for centuries to countries where they're suddenly being faced with it. 
Yeah, I think interesting. Not every country is the same. Um, if you look at the small islands, for instance, in the Pacific, um, I think quite a lot of them will actually vanish. We, we can say we will try to save them, but if you see how high above sea level they are currently and what the expectations are of sea level rise, then it's going to be very, very difficult. Bangladesh is an interesting example because the Netherlands has uh, a, a, an exchange of knowledge network with both Bangladesh but also with uh, the Mekong area in uh, around Cambodia and, uh, and Laos and Vietnam. The idea is to, exp- to export this type of knowledge. The Dutch did it, by the way, also. Uh, in New Orleans after Katrina and also to New York after Sandy occurred there to export this knowledge to help people uh, locally with solving some of these problems. Some of them you just need to create a very strong extra defense against this, the sea. Bangladesh has been uh, flooding, flooded for, for, forever. Yeah. So there is a, a flood zone part of the country. The problem now is that the flood zone uh, is getting more inland. So it's even uh, reaching Dhaka at a certain moment. So that's the problem in Bangladesh. So there is uh, an approach of com- combination of things. Yeah. Trying to get create a, a stronger uh, basis f- um, for the defense mm-hmm. of the of, of the of the storm surges and the floods from uh, from the ocean by recreating the natural system again. So basis, the basis for m- much of this work lies in that natural system that was was always there, but people mm-hmm. started to to exploit that mm-hmm. and um, to start uh, when you start regenerating that system then you automatically create a very strong uh, coastal uh, protection uh, system and I think that's that's the way forward uh, new technology in combination with existing uh, knowledge and expertise locally around a certain natural coastal system and if you can combine that knowledge with each other and collaborate with local people then there's a lot of things uh, that we can actually solve in this. Uh, so, uh, in the case of Bangladesh, do you imagine one of those sand machines again? Or, or I'm not sure. I think that will be difficult in Bangladesh because that is a that is a whole different system. One of the things I think I, I, I'm thinking of when you when mm. thinking about around Bangladesh is to increase this mangrove uh, forest mm. uh, in, in front of the coast and basically in the whole zone because it's uh, half of the country basically yeah. is uh, is under influence of uh, of flooding and the sea. So, and that's also the quality of the country. Yeah. So that's where the people uh, do their fishing, etc., etc. And they they live there for centuries. So that there will be flooding, uh, getting in and out. That, that that system needs to be the same. The only thing is that with sea level rise and these uh, heavier storms, people will face more difficulties. So strengthening the natural system to have a system that people can live in still but based on what was there before, it might be the solution for Bangladesh. Yeah. Okay. Well, just uh, I think you've spoken quite a lot about building with nature, uh, not to resist it. Do you want to have, do you have a few more points about that? Just uh, urban, we're talking about eco-cities, so what would be design factors in the urban environment that you could do that, that build us more in, in, na- 
in tandem with nature. Yeah. Uh, no, Especially considering flooding and heat wave effects and all of that in big yeah, cities. Yeah. Well, the, the building with nature, using what is there to um, allow the natural system to be stronger and stronger. For instance, if you look at, uh, at flooding, uh, for instance, as a result of Cyclone Debbie we saw recently in Australia, then what you see there is that the city is a fixed and very concrete mass of mm. stones and hard, hard surfaces. So what we need to do is uh, a couple of things. Back in the days, water could just flow into the soil and then uh, the soil, the cap- capacity of the soil was big enough to actually welcome the water. Mm. And um, I think that principle that the city could act as a sponge mm. uh, should be reintroduced in, uh, in our cities of today. That means that we, the water needs to stay in the city for a couple of days and then needs We'd rather not have it in our houses, but we need to have it in places that it can actually stay for a couple of days and then will be released very slowly or to the soil or to the river system and the bigger uh, environment around the city. So spaces in the city are very, very uh, confined at the moment and we need to make use of innovative design solutions to create a situation where, situations where the water can actually stay. One of the interesting examples, again from the Netherlands, uh, is to create a so-called water square. So a square but which is in dry circumstances a playground or it's a basketball field or whatever. And um, when it starts to rain, that place can fill up with water, like a basin, yeah. and can catch, basically, the water from, the, from its surroundings. So the water doesn't have to go into the sewage system and then the sewer system is not big enough and the whole street will flood. No, it stays there until it's dry and then the water can be released slowly to, to the system, to the sewage system. Um, for instance, in wintertime, it may be even uh, suitable to skate on huh? uh, because if you have the water there, you, you keep it there and then when it starts freezing, you can actually uh, create a, a skate rink on it. So that m- multiple use of the same space would actually create a higher capacity to to deal with this water. Yeah. When I lived in Switzerland years ago, there was a a citizen referendum to pull up all the footpaths. (laughs) I don't think they voted to have it because everyone's going to be too muddy. But I think that's the same idea, isn't it, to have more uh, access to just the, the earth. Uh, gardens. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. One of the things that happens a lot in, uh, not, not only in Switzerland, but in, in every city around the world, is that people start to change their front, front garden from uh, grass or plants or a real garden into yeah. a parking space, uh, parking space, which is completely concrete and the water can not go anywhere, basically. So one of the things you might do at, as an individual, an individual household, is to re design your garden and create a real garden again so the water can just sink into the into the soil and the the good old rain capture facility that you could have why don't we have it anymore yeah so we always captured the water we could use it for watering the garden in hotter times we just got rid of it out of our system and i think we should bring a couple of those elements back in it so thank you very much. So that was the innovative ideas and old ideas from our Professor of Sustainable Urban Environments, who's also a landscape architect, Dr. Rob Rohema. Thank you very much, Rob. You're welcome. Feeling shortchanged by all the doom and gloom of climate change and want to help? Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. 
At BZE, we have a blueprint to help Australia become a thriving zero-emissions economy, but we are dependent on public donations, so we need your help. To donate or find out more information, head to bze.org.au. That's bze.org.au. You are listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. Viv is reporting from the EcoCities World Summit where she learned about emergency responses and how we can help our Pacific neighbours. I'm at the uh, conference still and I've met uh, Kari Bais Taoba. She's the Regional Director of the Commonwealth Local Government Forum for the Pacific. And I'd like her... We were talking before at a session and it was most fascinating to realise what the geography of the Pacific is really like for it's so dispersed there are so many small islands in each nation there are many many little jurisdictions little local governments and so in a, a cyclone like the cyclone Winston recently in Fiji which has still left people suffering and living in tents to this day um, there's a kind of a special problem of uh, connecting with people so could you tell us tell us a little bit about the extent of the islands and how um, how that makes special problems for local government it is a very very uh, big problem in the Pacific especially because like you said it's so isolated and dispersed and uh, visiting all these countries and islands and small villages it will cost a lot and it will take a lot of time so if one needs to help with that you have to sacrifice a lot of your time and resources to be able to stay for some time with the people who are affected uh, many times now as you as you know there's so many cyclones uh, cyclones and uh, floods and all those kind of things and 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 national government it's very hard for them to reach all the people People that are there, yeah. uh, yes, and I think the, the radio may be a, a solution, and uh, maybe some kind of education and awareness to help those who are so isolated from national government to be able to help themselves. Mm-hmm. How much warning do people get, or what sort of warning do they get? In Australia, we might see it on television that there's going to be a bushfire or a day of heat wave in a couple of days, or flooding. We get messages more or less on the television, but I imagine there the communication might be different. Yes, mm-hmm. it, it may be different, but there are some big countries like uh, Fiji and uh, PNG. Maybe they have uh, better uh, uh, technology to be able to communicate. But the majority of the countries, they still don't have those kind of things, especially on the out island. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is very hard for them, like I said, to, to, to connect with them. Mm. Well, this, th- these kinds of events are getting worse with climate change, but they're not new events. People have always had to suffer big tides and uh, tsunamis and cyclones, haven't they? Mm. What, what's the traditional approach to protect uh, isolated communities? Mm. I think, yeah, we've been there for many, many years, and we have been affected many, many years also with these uh, disasters. But now disasters are more frequent and they, uh, many of these problems are more global. So they begin to be a bit uh, new to us. So we need to have, together with our own traditional uh, systems of how we uh, uh, 
how we work with disaster when it strikes us. We need to have more kind of uh, education on what we can do on top of what we know. Yes. Um, is that something that in the um, local government forums that you are actually conscious of, that you're trying to educate people to think or to get themselves, to find their own leaders to work out what protocols they should put in place? Mm-hmm. I think it's not only local government, and, and we're working with national government to do that. And we're trying to find like a space where they can come together and talk about these kind of problems that are affecting the majority of the, the people. And yeah, that is one of our, 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 our main work to, to go to the islands and be able to help them on those kind of things. Mm. I, is, I think I imagine that there's a problem with cyclones that no one has ever seen before or massive, like we've had in Vanuatu, a massive um, cyclone there that really knocked out the country. It must have come as a complete surprise. Is that, is that the problem, that it's surprising people don't know how to react? Yes, I like I said, it's it, the the cyclones are, are, are part of our lives. But the the recent ones, like what happened in Vanuatu, what happened in and Fiji, the Winston Winston cyclone, that is quite big, and we are not used to that. And uh, I must tell you that uh, during the cyclones, many people are not prepared to it. They, they, they probably think that it's one of those uh, small mm-hmm. cyclones, not knowing that this one is going to be quite dramatic, and, and, and they are not prepared for yeah. that. Mm. So people are not evacuated or warned to get up to higher ground quick enough? They are warned. I, I think they are warned, but they, it, it, it takes time for people to move uh, there are people who, are, who can move very fast, but there are a lot of people who, who just can't because they are so isolated, they don't have uh, transport to move them around. So, yeah, it's happening to a lot of them, and they are suffering a lot, and many of them are still trying to find their life after those yeah. kind of events. Yeah. Well, we're at a, a, a conference which is about um, eco-cities and city, you know, uh, I went to the session with Kiribati, which was about uh, local governments. For example, we had about flood relief in Australia where still people will drive their cars into floods and, and the message over the radio, don't drive, don't go and lose your life just for nothing. Um, so that's one thing. But I wonder, do you get any help from hearing about other, other countries or other local government representatives? Do you, is it helpful for you to come here? Are you getting some new ideas or any helpful uh, connections? Yes, it helps very much and I would like to thank Ikle for doing that for me. They bring me over here. I've met a lot of people. I've met uh, I have been doing some sessions yes. presentations and there are a lot of people who came up to me and suggest this and that yeah. and I think I will go back with so many information that I can use to help uh, 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 local government members of CLGF back in, in the Pacific. Okay. Well, the last question is about after the disaster, you know, six months later, 12 months later. As you said, people in Fiji are still living in tents, some of them, after the Cyclone Winston. And we know that the damage is very much off the media, out of the media as a few months later, and that's when a lot of the suffering goes on. What, what do you think um, about international aid? When people fly in straight after a tsunami or a cyclone and bring, you know, Red Cross help, is that really helpful or could it be better? 
Yeah, I, yeah, you're right. There are some people who are still living in tent, especially in Fiji. But I, I also want to uh, inform people that Fiji lo- government is doing a lot to help them. But like I said, it's so isolated. And, yeah. yeah. And um, my advice to people who are coming to assist, I think it's important that they listen to whatever decision that are there in the country. And the country needs to have some kind of planning Mm. so that when donors come to their uh, assistance, they they follow mm, systems and mechanisms and this and that because most of the time they will come, they try to help, but most of the cases they're not helping. Give me an example of how it doesn't help, just a general example of how the aid could be all wrong and no help at all. Like, for example, when they come to one island, uh, they will decide, because of what they have, they will decide to have a clinic over here or a classroom over here, but never realising that that is the the the, the, the road, oh. the main road, or they don't put it there because many of the... Th- it's often river or those kind of things that they don't know, the environment that they don't know. They have to work with whoever, the national government if they are prepared or even the local government or even the community because the community they know more. So I think it's important that countries if they're going to uh, use the assistance that they're going to get is to be prepared themselves and have all these things in line so that when they come, the donors, when they come, they know they will be able to help uh, them in a very uh, consistent kind of way and cooperatively. Mm. I just had one more question. Yesterday, I think it was the High Commissioner for Fiji gave a speech, and he said that already um, some part of Fiji is being bought by people from Kiribati in case they have to evacuate their people. Is that happening widely in the Pacific, that people are preparing to leave where climate change might, in fact, make life impossible on their own islands? I am from Kiribati. Oh, you are? Yes, and I don't really know about the reasons why yes. they bought that land. And I, I've heard so many stories about it. Some were saying, yeah, that will be a place where we'll go, or, and some government, because there's a lot of changes in yes, government yes. since that land was bought. Uh, some were saying, no, that is going to be a place where we're going to plant our food and then send oh, it back to, yeah. to Kiribati. We don't know. And maybe... Maybe Fiji and Kiribati knows more about it, yeah. but those are the rumors that I heard. Yeah. And I have been uh, living in Fiji for about nine years now, yeah. and that island, that land that they've bought, it's been there since, and they haven't exactly. used it yet. Oh. Well, we did interview someone about uh, 18 months ago called Ursula Rakova, and she, they were bringing people to Bougainville, Uh, in the same way. And I just wondered if this was starting to be the trend in other Pacific Islands. No? Mm. Well, it depends on who's the the leader at that time. Because right before uh, before the president was Mr. Anutetong, and he was very vocal about Mm. climate change. And one of his um, solutions is for people to migrate with dignity. Yes. <laughs> so when he said dignity to have some kind of skills that can be useful in the land where they're going to go. Mm. Right now there's a change. Mm. And the, the the current president he's talking more about what we can do at home. Okay.
All right. Well, we'll leave it there because it's obviously an ongoing story, but yes. it's fascinating to us. And, of course, Australians should help and want to help, but we need to help, as you say, appropriately and not do the wrong thing. So thank you for talking to us. We've been talking to Kiribati Tawaba from the uh, Commonwealth Local Government Forum of the Pacific. You're listening to 3CR Radio. Okay, we're going to speak now to David Holgren. His new book is going to be out at the Sustainable Living Festival. It's called, David? Retro Suburbia, A Downshifter's Guide to a Resilient Future. Okay, we mostly know David for the permaculture uh, connections he's had in his many books and um, a lot of conference um, talks have been about the nuts and bolts of uh, putting in sort of environmentally non-damaging transport and so on but I think there's also a need for a cultural shift a shift in thinking and the reason David that I've got this I've been uh, to several talks by um, Clive Hamilton and it twice in a big symposium people were almost begging him what can we do what can we do and he said it's not a matter of doing he said I've done doing all my life but now I want to take time and my recent book is to take time out to think about climate change and I know you do a lot of thinking about sort of repositioning ourselves and repositioning the way we build and cities and suburbs so tell us how your thinking is changing with climate change breathing down our necks Well, I think a lot of the ideas that really informed permaculture back in the 1970s, the limits to growth, which was about the limits of resources and the limits of the sinks of what can you put into the environment, probably the most significant uh, scientific report in history and, and, and very debated at the time, but of course then dismissed in the Thatcherite Reaganite revolution of the 1980s. Well, now, 40 years later, we're pretty much on track for the broad outlines of, of, of what that scenario planning of of the world involved. So I've been part of seeing permaculture as being informed by a fairly dark view of the state of the world and the nature of things, but focused on the positive things that we can do. And in that sense, permaculture's had some correlation with what we would call uh, green entrepreneurship and green capitalism, about doing something rather than not doing something. But it's always operated at the household, at the biological level, about doing really very basic things following nature. But what we've found over the decades of people doing that is that unless they are also changing the way they live. So, for example, you can grow a fantastic food garden, but unless your food habits naturally relate to going out to the garden rather than opening the fridge door, what's to eat, then the productive garden will actually waste away. So you've got to change both the consumption side of the equation and the production side. And that those not be two separate things, one out in the other side of the world and the other in one's apartment, but you actually bring them back together where people live. So permaculture's been about that, bringing that solution as a living solution which is both addressing the production and the consumption side of the equation. And a lot of that then leads to not how to do something smarter, but often how to not do something. Like, no, don't go to work. Work part-time. Get out of debt, downsize, that the solutions 
a lot of the solutions, it's easier to not do something. And of course, the reason that message is never portrayed is that that will contract the economy, mm. if not collapse the economy. Mm. And in an economy addicted to growth, of course, that can't be even spoken about as a possibility. But if we look at how a lot of things that in the last few generations have shifted from the household and community non-monetary economies into the monetary economy. I mean, the biggest one of those was women moving into the workforce, and yes, there are a lot of positives to that, but that was the last big crash of the household non-monetary economy. Yes. Obviously, yes. you know, no time to, to make lunch by lunch. Yes. I mean, and a thousand other things. Yes. That, so that what we now have is a state where our household and community non-monetary economies are the thinnest, most fragile in history. And yet we know that if there's an economic contraction, we need those to sustain people. What we can also see from a strong argument from the experience of people who have done this downshifting and gone back to doing more things for themselves is that it's actually massively lowers uh, ecological footprint. Yeah. Because for a lot of these things that have only recently gone into the monetary economy, it's much more efficient to do them at home. Yeah. And so that's things like um, you know, looking after the kids, uh, growing food, uh, repairing the house. And on top of that, we now have unique possibilities that previous generations didn't have, some of which people sort of know about but don't seem to sort of take advantage of too much, of work from home telecommuting and all of those possibilities. So we don't need to actually leave our, our base, which is an underused base. Yeah. OK, well, look, the media, as you know, they seem to be in denial about this limits to growth. They keep all the people, all the pundits on our TV screen, and they're all talking about growth. All the indicators of health in our economy are growth. And no matter how many people I talk about, you know, who are economists, they still want to see growth indicators. And yet a lot of people here at the conference and elsewhere are talking about decoupling our, at least our energy use from fossil fuels while still having growth. Do you see that as correct? Uh, this is just a hypothesis that this is possible. <laughs> uh, there is no direct, credible evidence that... Uh, economies, certainly monetary economies, can grow without an increase in energy and materials use. Of course, there's another thing that says, ah, but it will be non-carbon energy, yeah. and that somehow that will be all right. There's a whole lot of issues that all of the new energy infrastructure that we have to build is upfront expensive, not just in dollar terms, but in carbon terms and in materials terms. You know, that building a, a wind farm of comparable size to a coal-fired power station is actually more costly up front, uh, and then it's not later on. So that cost is embodied energy that we have to m have this massive expenditure up front in the hope that over its lifetime it will you know, be less. Yeah. So there's a structural problem that if you suddenly run around and do a lot of stuff like build a new energy system for the world, 
in 10 or 20 years, you will create a lot of pollution, use a lot of materials very, very quickly. You'll certainly get economic growth. Whether you will actually help in dealing with the climate crisis in the short term, in this next 50 years, you may actually make it worse. Mm. And, of course, that is a, a view that is put but debated so fiercely that even that expression that I'm giving is sometimes called climate denial. Yeah. That if you question, you know, the... the the ease with which the renewable energy rollout can just happen and we have a sharp downturn in greenhouse gas emissions as a result. Yes, I don't know if you saw Al Gore yesterday giving a presentation and it was exactly that. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I wasn't able to be here yesterday, but I'm, yeah, I'm familiar with uh, those arguments. But the, uh, the positives that are possible now is that if we take things out of the monetary economy that are not efficient in resource terms or socially efficient to do there and put them back into the household and community non-monetary economies, we, can, we know we can get a substantial reduction in environmental impact. We can build resilience, but it will involve a contraction of the monetary economy. Is this what you call about the energy descent? Is that what you're talking uh, well, about? Well, energy descent is a reality that I believe we are facing no matter what we do, and that is the decline in the net energy available to support humanity. We may have very vibrant energy industries, but they will be doing very well, while the rest of society will be poorer. <laughs> and that's, that's something that comes from shifting from high net energy return sources, like conventional oil and conventional gas, to the, the dirty and, and deep resources. And it involves pretty much, um, from my perspective and from the, all the scientific evidence that we've been tracking for 30 years, most of the renewables are a necessary transition, but they are a transition to a lower net energy yield sources. And the only one of the renewable energies that which held its strength in the era of cheap fossil fuels is by no accident, hydro, mm -hmm. because hydro actually does analyse out as a high net energy return. The debate about whether solar and wind and biomass and all of the other mm -hmm. renewables, I mean, I believe they are important and necessary, but whether they will support an, a, a rich, abundant, affluent, growing economy the way fossil fuel has, I don't believe that's possible. So no matter which way we cut it, yeah. we will be, each generation into the future in energy descent, will be living with less energy and less material wealth. So we will have to, like creative humans, start to reconfigure our thinking away from materialism to how we do less, how we are more satisfying basic human needs and aspirations through simpler ways of living rather than chasing the greater 
complexity. And already a lot of people in the world are already there. They've never been on this huge learning curve that we've been on in the last two centuries. They are still there. Well, it was very interesting that... With the, diversified, you know, the, lifestyle. The president of um, Indonesia's climate advisor, very eminent yeah. um, professor who's dealing with Jakarta, how to make Jakarta oh. uh, sustainable. Actually, his last off-the-cuff comment was about that the people in the villages actually have a lot of the models of sustainability that yeah. we need to somehow adapt or adopt, which was a remarkable admission, really, in a, it, you know, at the same time that saying that Indonesia is rapidly urbanising mm. and that we're losing that ecological common sense yeah. that existed on, amongst traditional people. Yeah, look... That brings up the thought of cities drowning. You know, he talked about Jakarta, it's already getting a lot of floods. He showed us a photo of the main part of Jakarta underwater, and that happens more and more frequently. So my vision, I mean, we have to talk real sense here. We are on a pathway to about four degrees of warming. It is That's the path we're on. We've got to get off it. I've only met one scientist who has had a vision of the recovery path, you know, that other path which mm. leads us back to sort of manageable kind of climate. And he was... Um, David, uh, Dr. David Lindenmeyer, and he was talking about reptiles and possums and finding refuges in forests. He was thinking about it, and he was thinking, we oh, don't have to plant a lot of heat-resistant trees in order to pass the next 80 years so they can have a refuge in those trees. And then when we go on the path of recovery, and I said, the path of recovery, he said, oh, yes, he said, you know, that IPCC graph. So that's right, you're the only one talking about the path of recovery. So in the meantime, when cities like Jakarta and other coastal cities start to flood and there's a ref, you know, there's a mass movement back inward um, from the coast. Reimagine refugee crisis, conflict, all of that, and the collapse of little civil society. What what do you see happening? Well, I suppose uh, when I did my future scenarios work, looking at multiple energy descent scenarios, four of them that are driven by climate change and the peaking of um, high-quality fossil fuel uh, resources, the four combinations, uh, green tech, brown tech, uh, earth steward and uh, lifeboat. Now, I was suggesting those are not choices we make, they are emergent possibilities that we might be dealing with. And I was very wary about sort of starting to move in uh, presenting this um, because I've had a lifetime of focusing on the positive solutions and talking about the realities we might be facing can be shifting into the fear rather than hope-based yeah. uh, responses. But I found in certainly in talking in the sort of circles that I move in, a lot of people found these uh, energy descent scenarios surprisingly uh, empowering. And I thought, how bad were the scenarios in their heads? So part of the problem is the refusal in the mainstream polite society to actually discuss um, alternatives to the business as usual. Mm -hmm. And so you get the, oh, well, if this all doesn't work, we end up with Mad Max. <laughs> and I thought... I got this so often in the early years, I thought, gee, a 1970s road movie as a reference point for what society looks like, surely we can do better than thinking yeah. about that. So uh, one of the 
things I suggest in my brown tech scenario, which I believe we are moving into, is that governments following crises, especially in the affluent world like Australia, will armour the cities and larger places and say, OK, we will look after you here, but the rural hinterlands we will abandon, like in Australia, severe bushfires. So ironically, we could see people moving a further urbanised concentration, mm. even though in the longer term a re-ruralisation of society might be a sensible response to energy descent realities. Yeah. So, and that's quite counterintuitive to the sort of people in my circles who always assume, well, cities will fall apart mm. because of ABC. Um, and everyone will flee to the country. The, the other reason to suggest, apart from the fact that Australians have so many generations of being urban livers, whereas you look at somewhere like Jakarta, half the population grew up in a village. Yeah. So in bad circumstances, they will go back to the village. Mm. I mean, they've probably even got cousins that still yeah. are on the farm. <laughs> you know. Now, what they will do there, you know, who knows? But whereas in Australia, um, we have this long urban... History. We also have a rural environments that are actually quite harsh, mm. without infrastructure, irrigation, mm. and what it, whatever. And there's also a lot of learning that's come from 40 years of back to the land movement that people are finding that actually a move to a country town, mm. <laughs> um, or a small rural village, or a regional centre, you know, like Ballarat or mm. Bendigo, is actually a better option, yeah. not just in terms of current lifestyle, but thinking about how would this place work in a, a much more difficult climate yeah. um, crisis world. And a lot of people are saying that, oh yeah, well somewhere like um, you know, Ballarat or Bendigo or, mm. or Geelong might be an easier place to maintain than Melbourne. But I don't have any doubt that while central government has the power, it will throw money into defending those central areas. And a lot of that, unfortunately, will lead to things like building seawalls yeah. to protect real estate that has no future. Can we just, I know you've got to go and give your yeah. talk soon. My last question, I'll tell you, when I was talking to Professor Lyndon Meyer, we did a whole session on, from the animal's point of view, yeah. and I had a bat expert, and he kept telling me fruit um, what are they called? Um, flying foxes, yes. Mm. And he told me that they're pollinators. Now, I'm a city person. I didn't know that flying foxes are yeah. pollinators. And he said because of the land clearing up and down the coast, they're starving and they're vital to our pollination. And I thought, now that gets through to me. I know I'm a city person. That's what's called ecosystem service. Do you think that's really crass to think of nature as being an ecosystem service? Because it really alarms me to think of us walling ourselves off and abandoning the country if we don't know. I don't know a lot about what service it does, but you must know a lot more. Well, I think we have to accept that nature it rapidly adapts and changes. The fact that flying foxes uh, were part of the tropical yeah. systems and they have now occupied Melbourne Botanic Gardens, and that's not just climate warming. It's a very small part of the change. It's adaption to so many other things that are happening. Now some species are highly specialised and don't adapt well whereas others like our possums that are, our cities are full of mm. possums adapt very well to those new environments. The idea that all of the species are providing in some way ecosystem services is really important and that includes 
the weeds and the things that we regard as pests. What nature always does is, can another species use some of that surplus? Mm. And because of our creativity, <laughs> we should we are always at that leading edge of, there's lots of that, how could we earn a living from what there is already too much of? Rather than saying, no, we don't want that to exist. We want these things that are rare. <laughs> okay, well, thank you. I'll leave you on that note. We'll come back to David Holmgren in February when he launches his book called... Retro Suburbia, A Downshifter's Guide to a Resilient Future. Thank you, David. Thanks tonight to our guests, Professor Rob Regema, Carabas Teoaba and David Holmgren. Many thanks to the team, Teddy, Jody, and Roger, for the podcast, Viv for the interviews. I'm Andy, and I've been panelling tonight. Thanks also to the EcoCity Summit organisers who gave BZE Media Passes and every assistance. Uh, just a quick plug for Al Gore's new film, An Inconvenient Sequel, Truth to Power. It's coming to cinemas on August 10th. Again, I'm Andy... Thanks for joining us on Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. Stay tuned next for The Nile Show with Aziza.